Welcome to Reading the Room, a literary podcast featuring author interviews and discussions with bookish content creators. I am your host, Jalen, also known as The Bar in the Bookcase on YouTube. Today I am joined by John Ray, author of Gone to the Wolves, available now from FSG Books. This book came onto my radar from Catherine Lacey, friend of the pod who I recently chatted with about her new book, Biography of X, and what I knew about this book was that it was about friendship and heavy metal. And I've never really listened to metal before, but I was really intrigued by the cover of this book, and once I picked this book up, I could not put it down. Gone to the Wolves tells the story of Kip, Kira, and Leslie, who are all outsiders, even in the metal scene that they love. In the backwoods of Florida in the 1980s, just listening to heavy metal can get you arrested but the risk is worth taking because music is what leads them to each other. As different from one another as they are, the three form a family of sorts, one safer and more loving than the broken homes they come from. Together, they make the pilgrimage from Florida's swamp country to LA's fabled Sunset Strip, but the beautiful new life they dreamed of soon proves a mirage. Kira finds herself drawn to ever darker and more extreme strains of metal, drifting toward a place where her two friends, for all their love, can't follow. On a trip to Europe for her 22nd birthday, she simply vanishes in the middle of a show. Years later, the shocking truth about her disappearance reunites Kip and Leslie, whose search for her takes them from California to the snowbound woods of Norway. But bringing Kira home will require a greater sacrifice than either can imagine. If you'd like to support Reading the Room, I have a Patreon. Joining the Patreon gives you access to a bonus monthly episode of the podcast, which are chats with friends about literary discourse or other bookish topics. Also, you can receive access to my book club. I select a book every month, and you can join me near the end of every month on Zoom to discuss it with other Patreon members. If you miss it or cannot join, the book club recording will be uploaded to my YouTube channel so you never miss out. Reading the Room is an independent podcast, so every member contributes to making this the best literary podcast it can possibly be. Thank you to all who have joined so far, and I look forward to meeting more of you at patreon.com slash readingtheroom, also linked in the episode notes. Now let's get into the chat with John Ray. I hope you enjoy it. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jalen. So I know we were just talking about this before we started recording, but I wanted to ask you about how you started with this novel, whether it started with heavy metal, friendship, the various settings that take place in this book. Um, Where did this project begin for you? It actually um, began with a friendship. It began with a very specific friendship that I had with a kid from small town, Florida. Actually, he grew up in Venice, Florida, where Gone to the Wolves begins. And he was just a very, very colorful kind of eccentric character, full of anecdotes about the crazy people he knew growing up in in these parts of Florida that most people never get to, you know, not Miami, not Orlando, not Tampa, but these little towns in between, you know, that sort of people just drive through without ever stopping, you know? And as these anecdotes and stories and characters built up in many conversations that I had with him, I began to realize that at least some of this should work its way into something that I wrote at some point. Um, And then once I decided I was gonna write a novel that at least began in this kind of strange part of of, uh, forgotten Florida, um, I began to think about when it would start. Uh, and I, as soon as I made the decision that the characters in this book would basically be exactly my age, you know, um, be the same age that I was, once I knew that I was going to write about them as teenagers, you know, it was clear that it would happen in the late 80s, early 90s. And just really by chance, in a way, at that moment, sort of culturally in Florida, there was this very strange thing happening, this sort of unprecedented boom in extreme heavy music. I started remembering my own sort of misspent youth, 
and um, the music I listened to then and the, the sort of passionate friendships that I fell into because of this shared love of, of these certain types of extreme music. And from then on, it just became clear to me that, that I should write a book about this and a book about metal, which is a, a world and a community and a, a culture that I don't think has ever been written about in a novel, at least not in any sort of dedicated celebratory way. In terms of writing about metal, like, so for myself, of course, I've heard maybe like snippets or just, I, I generally know what it sounds like, right? But at the same time, I feel like it'd be really hard from a craft perspective to be able to write what that music feels like without actually having the auditory experience for the reader. And so how did you think about, I think it, you do this so well. So I'm wondering how you thought about it going into it in terms of trying to replicate what heavy metal feels like and sounds like for these characters. Well, writing about music is incredibly difficult. And um, I think the point at which you begin as a writer to be able to write about the experience of hearing and, and, and engaging with music is really the point at which you accept that it is impossible to really capture that in prose. It just doesn't, it's just not gonna happen. So you then have to shift almost away from trying to describe the, the actual kind of sensory data of listening to, to, to any kind of music. Uh, and you, you kind of realize that you really just have to focus on the effect that it has on your characters, you know, the same way that you might write about your characters hiking through a hailstorm or, um, you know, riding in a speeding sports car. It's, you, you can't really describe exactly how that feels in any other way than talking about the, the effect that it has on your characters, you know? Um, and that's very freeing when you realize that, that, you know, you're never going to really perfectly transmit the visceral feeling of, of, of being at a, at a metal show with all the volume and the incredibly heavy bass just sort of moving inside of your body and the fun of that and the, and the thrill of that and also the sort of scary part of that. You just have to focus on, on your character's reactions to what they're feeling and then you just think about your own experiences and draw from that. It is very, it is hard to do. Uh, it's, a, it's a daunting thing, but I've spent so many years as a music journalist, you know, and there's that dreaded point in any music profile where you actually have to at least briefly try to talk about what the music sounds like. And every every music journalist will tell you they dread that moment and they try to get around it and, and leapfrog over it as much as they can and just focus on, you know, um, what was Beyonce wearing that day, you know? What, was she, what cocktail was she drinking? You know, that's a hell, hell of a lot easier than talking about her music. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you do this in two interesting ways. I mean, on the one hand, Kip partakes in some criticism at a certain point in the novel and how he starts thinking about music on that level. But then also there's a character named Jackie who talks about two, I guess, like kind of cults around metal. And so the first one is Dionysian, which is they like worship at the altar of sex, drugs and melody. And then the cult of set, which worships like violence and rhythm reigns supreme is what I wrote down. So I just wanted to ask you about the kind of that. I love like typology and like grouping in fiction and how writers kind of use that to explain things. So do you yeah. want to share anything about that? Well, um, again, in a way, by, by a happy accident, once I decided the time period I was going to write about, I knew that the novel was going to be divided into three sections of roughly equal length. Um, they were going to be set in different places. So Florida first, then Los Angeles, the Sunset Strip, and finally Norway. Uh, and that each of those sections would also be 
essentially would almost have a, a different kind of score or soundtrack, which was the, 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 the genre or subculture of metal that our characters were kind of exploring in that at that time in their lives. And in the Los Angeles section, you know, the, it, the, the novel is about these three friends who then eventually kind of run away from Florida and try to kind of be adults and grownups in, in, in Los Angeles in the late 80s. And at that time in the metal world, which was a pretty big and dominant world actually in that period of time, like most of the best-selling bands in the country were, were in some way affiliated with metal at the time, you know, and Headbangers Ball was on MTV and was kind of everyone kind of Metal was on everybody's radar, basically, is what I'm saying. But there was there was this real kind of conflict, like like a schism was kind of building within the metal scene between these very glam, very sort of big hair, uh, tight spandex, what came to be known as hair metal or glam metal, uh, that was that was completely dominant on MTV and really selling all the records, making all the money. And then this other kind of dirtier, grungier, nastier, uh, much less profitable, uh, more underground kind of kind of metal, which was much more strongly influenced by hardcore and punk rock and had a completely different ethic and, and, and aesthetic. And there was this real clash that happened, you know. Um, so Motley Crue and Poison and even Guns N' Roses, like those were the dominant bands, but their moment was kind of passing. And then you had these other bands of which the most famous is probably Metallica, who were really coming out of, out of a combination of metal and punk rock. And um, those guys were kind of younger and they were on the way up, but they were still outsiders. So a very fascinating moment to write about, you know, when when the old guard is is still dominant, but there's a revolution coming within this sort of little world of of passionate headbangers and metal fans. Um, just a super fun time to write about um, experiencing. I was in L.A. for part of that time, so I also got to just remember what it was like to be 23 and and really thinking that what kind of band T-shirt you had on was just about the most important decision you could make that day. One thing that it made me think of is, I guess, um, an art form that I'm more familiar with is just drag generally, which is briefly spoken about in the yeah. novel as well. But it kind of reminded me of of that in a way. And it was kind of interesting thinking about those two things together and kind of expression um, being such a fundamental part of metal, especially at this time as you're, as you're speaking about. And you already kind of touched on this, but I... I wanted to ask you about the structure of this book because I think it's really interesting how you divide it into setting and then also just different points in these characters' lives. But just to start with the introduction of this book that kind of kind of clues the reader into a core mystery about the book and when Kira disappears. And so I wanted to ask you about how you landed on the mystery aspect of this book and the sort of adventure plot that's like the last third of the book and why you chose to open it with that sort of hint of suspense. Well, it's always fun to open a, a, a novel that's going to have suspense later with a kind of hint of suspense, you know, um, that I probably learned that technique and that structural approach from a lot of uh, genre fiction that I happen to love, you know. Um, my books tend to be classified as, as, you know, literature, whatever that means, right? I mean, usually that just means that the, the booksellers don't know where else to put your books, you know. Um, but I've always looked to genre fiction, uh, crime fiction primarily, but also science fiction, fantasy, 
for certain techniques, especially structural techniques, you know, how, how to shape the narrative, how to create the architecture of what happens when and so on. I mean, that's something that that a well-written thriller knows how to do incredibly well. Um, and there's an enormous amount that can be learned from that. So because the book really begins as more of a, of a kind of coming of age narrative and then a bit of a love story, it's the kind of suspenseful thriller aspects that later that maybe become a little bit more important later in the in the novel aren't aren't necessarily apparent when you're talking about the protagonist kip's first day at a new high school you know we don't quite know that um life or death decisions will be coming at them all down the road so um it was fun to just sort of write this very brief little prologue which is also set at a metal show and in fact it's a metal show by the metal band that was dominant in my hometown when I was growing up. I happened to come from the same hometown as this band called Cannibal Corpse, which people outside of the world of metal probably have never heard of, but they've sold millions of records across the world. Uh, and they happen to come from my sort of Rust Belt hometown. So I, 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 got, to, I got a chance to, to name check them in the very first sentence of the novel, um, which is kind of fun. Uh, I mean, I should say here as a caveat, you don't have to listen to any of this music to enjoy the novel. And um, what you said earlier about how, as a writer of, of fiction, you can't really, you're not playing the music for, for your reader the way you could if you were making a feature film, for example. That may, be a, a, that may be a good thing too, you know, because this kind of extreme metal is not for everybody. Um, but fortunately, you don't really have to, have to be blasting it while you're reading the book. Yeah, I was not particularly familiar. And I, I do kind of want to check out metal after reading this book just to kind of get a better sense of what was going on, you know, post reading it. But you, I agree. I mean, you don't need well, to know like anything that's about the it. Highest, I feel like that's the highest praise you can give me. If you'd actually, if you're motivated to feel curious or adventurous about, about this very maligned and marginalized uh, subculture, really, uh, if you're talking about mainstream America, um, I mean, that's kind of great, you know, but I, I wanted to write a book that wasn't really certainly not only for, for metal fans. And it's more it's more really about about creating your identity uh, by finding a place for yourself in a, in, a, in a marginalized kind of underground community. I feel like that could apply to so many lifestyles and subcultures in, in the United States. That kind of speaks to I mean, what is really the core of this book, in my opinion, is just the friendship aspect here. And I think going to the structure of what you're doing so interestingly is like so the first two parts so you're introduced with this you know kind of suspense setup where kira goes missing but then there's a, a huge chunk of this book that's just about their coming of age as you said and it really when it comes back to that plot point you know the characters so well they're so close to your heart that once this happens you're like oh shit this is going to happen to kira and they have to deal with this and i for, kind of forgot i didn't forget about it but it was brought back to mind you know um so it gives yeah. stakes and so i wanted to ask you about the friendship here and how you chose the sort of love triangle dynamic? Like why three characters? Was it ever two? Was it ever four? Like how did you get to that framework? Three is more interesting than two and a hell of a lot less complicated than four. <laughs> I intentionally chose three characters who were very distinct from one another, very different, different interests, different backgrounds, different sexuality. You know, part of the reason I wanted to do that was to, was to, to sort of challenge a lot of preconceptions about, about metalheads, 
you know, and this idea that all metalheads are male, all metalheads are straight, all metalheads are white. In my personal experience, that was not the case. Um, metal has this reputation as being somewhat maybe traditional conservative, you know, red state phenomenon or something, you know. Um, but I mean, the shows I went to when I was growing up, uh, there was a very colorful, wide spectrum of people in the audience. You know, you looked around, it wasn't all just like scary rednecks with long, greasy hair at all, you know. So I really wanted to sort of work against a lot of preconceptions and stereotypes, uh, especially because there haven't, I don't think there's been a novel written about this, uh, about this culture before. So that kind of started me on this road of having at least three characters, you know, who could as a unit kind of almost embody the heterogeneity of, of, of the scene as I knew it. You know, I felt like there were a lot of misconceptions I wanted to set straight. Um, and also, I've, you know, I based these characters in, to a large degree on people that I knew. So. so for Leslie, he kind of introduces the first chapter after the introduction. And I really like, I'll just read the first sentence. Um, I wrote down a note, but I'll just read it. So it says, Leslie Z had three strikes against him already. He was black, he was bi, and he liked Hanoi Rocks. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's such an interesting way to open, you know, a character's introduction. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about each of the characters here to get listeners, you know, more acquainted with these characters. But I guess we could start with Leslie and his development from the start. And then later once, not to spoil anything really, but he battles with addiction as well. And so I hearing you say that it's based off a real character, like how did you go about crafting Leslie in this dynamic? Well, Leslie was probably the most fun of the three. Um, and he may be my favorite. Really at the most kind of closely based on 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 specific people or person, a person in this case, uh, is, is the character of Leslie. I just, you know, I have a friend who is into the sort of music you would never expect him to be into. Um, he has a lot of sort of biographical history in common with Leslie. Um, you know, he's a, he's a gay black man who happens to really like heavy music and heavy metal. And, um, you might not assume that that would be the kind of music he was into, but again, as I've said before, people surprise you, you know, any kind of culture around any sort of music is going to involve a lot of people getting together and that means there are going to be a lot of exceptions to the rule but in that case i just thought back to the kind of really funny slightly annoying sort of know-it-all ultra music geeky conversations that we used to have um he's the kind of guy whose opinion about music is just categorical you know this band is shit this band is the best band ever there's no room for debate and he'll just lecture at you, you know, but he does it in this incredibly knowledgeable, hilarious, encyclopedic, almost sort of theological way that you just, I mean, it just, he elevates music discourse to, to almost to a kind of philosophy. And um, so that makes you, you know, that means you tolerate his, his grandstanding, you know? So all of that stuff I just took to create the character of Leslie Z, who's sort of equal parts insufferable and and deeply lovable and probably the smartest of the three friends, the most sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, that actually reminds me. So are you familiar with the Scream franchise? The slash films? Yeah. He kind of reminds I, I, me of- I think I saw the first one. I don't know, maybe the second one. 
Okay, yeah, he, so Scream is, like, my favorite horror franchise, and this book kind of reminds me of that a little bit, but also, like, the character of Randy, who's kind of, like, this all-knowing slasher kind of guru, and he sort of, in a meta way, kind of steers the conversation on what's going to happen. He's always kind of talking about how the situation they're in is reminiscent of some famous slasher movie. Yeah, exactly, and he knows, like, what's good and what's bad, and and trying to kind of tee up what's going to play out in the movie. I love, like, meta stuff like that, so Leslie kind of gave me that, like, funny endearing lovable kind of nature of, of randy um but i mean it, yeah i mean aside from that too like with kira she's really interesting and it seems she's a really complex character because we learn more about her past and her abusive household and how kip learns about that um and so for kira and how she plays into this dynamic how did you think about her and i guess a, a sub question there is the sort of love dynamic between her and kip did, was it always going to be a romance of sorts between them or did you ever consider it to be platonic like when did that kind of come for her as well i knew that i didn't want my friendship triangle to be all dudes you know i definitely knew i even at one point i thought about maybe having two women and one man but then that seemed that didn't seem representative of, of the reality because there are of course at any metal show there are more guys than, than girls in the crowd you know but i also again I wanted to kind of go against she's sort of a figure of fascination for 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 both Leslie and Kip even though Leslie is more interested in 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 the boys than girls but not entirely and um they're both kind of starstruck by her although they express it in different ways it actually began in my mind as a platonic thing you know I had this idea that each of each member of this triangle would be kind of secretly in love with with someone else in the triangle, but it would never be fully expressed except through kind of music. But then, you know, the novel just seemed to require a bit more, a bit more action than that. Um, and I knew there had to be some pretty major fallings out between between the characters along the way. And some of those are caused by other things like addiction and, and other sort of lifestyle choices that they make along the way. They just kind of decided they were going to hook up one night. I don't know. And I just went along for the ride. Yeah, I mean, it gives it, you know, additional stakes. And with, with Kip kind of playing into this, too, and his character, one really interesting device you use here is this concept of the white room, which is basically when he gets in these, like, fits of anger, where he kind of blacks out or maybe whites out is a better better term here. <laughs> um, so can you talk about or how you came up with this idea of the white room and his anger? Well, I had a good friend growing up who... Um, didn't have fits of rage per se, but uh, due to some a history of abuse and other things, um, would dissociate very powerfully at certain times, especially under under at stressful moments. You know, which wasn't good when he was behind the wheel of a car, for example. I had I think I took that idea of of this tendency to dissociate um, as a result of I, I suppose PTSD, and that became important in the book, uh, both in the case of of Kip, the protagonist's uh, rage sort of fits that he has every once in a while, but also then in the character of Kira, who's sort of on a lifelong quest to feel more alive. And I mean, I guess nowadays in the age of of memes and all that, you would you would say to not feel so dead inside, you know. But uh, in the '80s, when she's growing up, she doesn't really have the words for it. Um, so she's always looking for the more extreme experience and, and even painful experiences to, to, to kind of break through this dissociative tendency that she has, um, which is what ultimately kind of draws her towards more and more extreme and more 
dangerous uh, musical kind of scenes, uh, which is how she eventually ends up in Norway uh, in the early 90s during the, the rise of the so-called black metal movement, uh, which was a time when the kind of performative, theatrical, fantastical violence of metal actually spilled over into genuine violence and things got pretty scary. That third part, I was, I didn't really know where it was going. I was really surprised where it does. And I'll leave it for yeah. listeners to kind of discover that. But uh, aside from, you know, the book getting incredibly dark at times, I, this book is really funny and the dialogue is really engaging. And I, I'm always curious when I read dialogue that I like, like how a writer does that. And so I just want to know how you think about dialogue and when you know it has that right tone and kind of built humor as well. Well, this this novel was the most fun novel that that, that I've written. You know, um, I guess, I don't know, this is my sixth one, I think. And this was the, uh, definitely the most fun. And, and to a large degree, it was extremely fun because of the dialogue, because there's just, you know, I think having, first of all, having these three characters who are all pretty sharp and, and often kind of on a, in a sort of state of low simmering conflict with one another, their dialogue is going to have a kind of an edge to it and a lot of room for kind of teasing and, and ribbing and, and, and passive aggression too. Uh, but then also this subculture that, you know, the world of, of metalheads is, is so colorful and has its own vernacular and it's obviously its own visual component and, and it can be so preposterous one moment and then so kind of, kind of real uh, and, and almost scary the next that there was just a lot of potential there for, for comedy. I think dialogue is the easiest thing for me to do. Um, I, I'm the kind of writer, I have a, a much harder time, uh, you know, just writing about someone crossing a room and, and uh, you know, sitting down at a desk or something than I do having two or more characters talking at one another. I don't know, it's, I mean, it sounds, it sounds ridiculous to say this, but I, I, I just kind of put the characters together when I start to feel like I more or less know who they are and then I just think, oh, what would be a funny answer to that? What would be a funny response, you know? Or what would be a really cutting response? Or what would be a really surprising response? A lot of it involves avoiding or then in revision cutting out the obvious. It's amazing how much you can take out of a conversation and still have the context be completely clear and the conversation be easy to follow. Uh, you can really remove a lot of the stuff that you might think you had to have in there, you know? like. I'm actually kind of really mad at you because, you know, yesterday you, you know, ate my pizza, right? You don't need to have most of that statement in there, you know? You know, yesterday you ate my pizza is all you need to really say, you know? Um, that's a completely stupid example, but you know what I'm talking about, I hope. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it does flow really well. But even like, aside from the dialogue flowing incredibly well, what I really I've been trying to think through this in preparation for this of like how you do this, because in a very, you know, plain term, I, I describe books such as this that I loved are as like being great plot, great writing, right? Like, it, there's so much propulsion in the story, in the way that you even I know you just said that it's challenging, more challenging than dialogue to write certain descriptions, but everything congeals so well and i'm wondering for you when you're plotting even especially like the, the last third how you think about plot and narrative and how you kind of keep that propulsive nature in your writing going while also kind of giving like a lush description of what's going on without it being like burdensome on the reader it seems 
it works like magic. And so I don't know how to ask it. It works really well. Thank you so much. I think a lot of it is just revision. You know, I think a lot of it is just recognizing what's, what's unnecessary or what is a mistake or what is too bare bones. And then, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very, very sort of obsessive reviser and my rough drafts, my first drafts tend to be kind of like soggy tissue paper, you know, and uh, gradually they get better as I try to, you know, figure out what's not working and so on. You know, in, in, in Gone to the Wolves, by the time it gets very plot heavy and, and it starts to kind of, the suspense element starts to kick in. You know, by that point, I was already so grounded in the world and grounded in these characters um, that I kind of was, was intuiting what they would do and say uh, far more than I was really, really kind of racking my brains about it. Um, so I could focus on in a way I could focus on plot and on kind of action more than, than I could have right at the beginning of the book. You know, I, I do think writing a, 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 a tight, compelling, suspenseful plot is not that hard. You know, you just have to, every scene has to actually have something significant that happens in it. Um, and it has to kind of advance things and it kind of has to render the whole environment a little bit more dangerous than it was before the scene began. Um, so just, you know, you, you just kind of, end up, you know, increasing the frequency of significant events, you know, <laughs> which I guess is just a very, very, probably not very useful way of describing plot, but that is what plot is, of course, you know, um, I, you know, I've never written books that are all plot and that are like, you know, I don't know, the Da Vinci Code or something, you know, that's not really what I read books for, but I do think that especially once the reader is kind of comfortable and at home and oriented, in the fictional world you've created, then a little plot really goes a long way. And, and when things really start to happen at that point, it's not disconcerting or confusing to the reader because they know where they are. And then it's, you know, then you can have a lot of fun with it. One of my favorite, you know, things in fiction generally, which is in the beginning of this book is when Leslie and Kip are sitting in, uh, in Leslie's room and they're listening to music together. And I, I just, I love when characters are experiencing art and reading that in novels is something that's so fun to me, but you're right. I mean, I think with those first two parts really leading up to that last one, it was so fulfilling and it was, I want to find more books like this basically is what I'm trying to say. Like I loved how you kind of switched gears a little bit. The last question about the craft of it is when did you know that this was finished? Um, was it a grueling process getting there or was it, did you kind of know like, okay, it's done now? No, it's, I mean, that's that. I was just talking to somebody else about this. I really feel like knowing when a novel is done, knowing when to stop is, really one of the unsung skills in the skill set of a novelist that that i mean it's so crucial um because you can work things to death and then they lose this their their they kind of lose their flavor in a weird way if you chew them chew on them for too long in this case i thought the novel was completely done uh kind of at one point during the pandemic and then because of the bottleneck and because of all sorts of delays and i was living in mexico at the time and all sorts of things came together. There was a delay between when we initially thought the book was going to be published and when it was, a, a pretty long delay. And at some point during that period of time, I kind of just cracked open the manuscript again, thinking it was done. And I realized to my horror that it wasn't done at all. And I had to, you know, I had I'd really reworked a lot of it uh, in the course of that maybe six months or between six months and a year. If I hadn't done that, maybe the book would have been fine. Maybe that was just my own 
total neurosis kicking in in that weird kind of claustrophobic pandemic zone we were all in. I'm, I am glad that my editor finally just took it away from me because maybe I would still be working on it if, if that hadn't happened. I don't know. I mean, I know some people who, great writers who, who really will work on a, on a book for 10 years if they're allowed to. Um, and then I know some other equally great writers like like Catherine Lacey, who you had on your show just recently, who just seem so high functioning and they just kind of do it and they don't spend too much time on the project, a year or two or, you know, I mean, maybe three, but, but a, a relatively short period of time. And then they're just like, okay, done, on to the next project. You know, uh, Marlon James is like that too. I'm not like that. Going to, I guess, this kind of idea of finished books i guess i have to ask you about this cover because i'm calling it now like this is my favorite book cover of the year this is incredible i love i love like shiny covers as well when they're foiled so do you have any like anecdotes or anything about how this was the final cover because it's so good oh yeah i i definitely do um i i knew from a very early point uh in the not the writing of the book but in the kind of thinking about its packaging if you will um, that it, we had to do something that took advantage of the amazing typography in the world of metal. You know, um, a lot of novels you, you think about, oh, should there be a picture on the cover? Should there be an illustration? If so, what should it, what should be depicted on the cover, right? And, and I just knew from a very early point that the lettering, the typography, the fonts that, that we, you have in, in the metal world are just so amazing and and there's so much variety depending on again on like the specific genre of metal you're talking about i knew that 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 we need look no further you know that there was just so much to choose from right there that just the title just the important information in that lettering would be the way to go and because the book kind of moves from three different kind of kind of subcultures and genres I thought there should maybe be three different types of, of, um, of lettering on the cover. And then I drew this little sketch on a piece of paper, um, very, very crudely, but um, just to give Thomas Colligan, the, um, the wonderful designer at FSG who worked on the book, uh, uh, some kind of prompt. And I was very apologetic about it. I was like, I don't mean to you know, step on your toes here. And then he just went with it. He was very happy for that kind of prompt. I think he shared my enthusiasm for the amazing typography of the world of metal. And then we ended up with this design, which is pretty much the design on the finished cover, but it was just white lettering on black background, um, sort of like, you know, like a, like a metal t-shirt looks. And then we sat with that for a while and we were all pretty excited with the way it looked, but I just kind of thought, the only catch here is that that will make it seem as though this is a book only for passionate fans of this of this kind of music, you know, like a very, it would be very, very targeted at people who happen to, you know, have some metal records in their in their vinyl collection. And, and that's not what I wanted, you know, I wanted to do something to indicate that this is actually a pretty colorful, pretty fun, and often kind of funny book, not just like a scary book or something. So that's when we started thinking about what we could do, different color ideas. There was a time when the whole book was going to be hot pink with black lettering, you know, which would have been nice. But we finally settled on this idea of, of this kind of holographic iridescent foil, because from, from a certain angle, it, it really does just look sort of white or silver on black. 
But then if you tilt it just slightly, it explodes into this, this rainbow of color. I wasn't sure they would go for that because it costs a little bit more money to make, but, um, but they were into it. And, and we all just completely love the, the, the end result. Even like with the hot pink that kind of comes in here as well. I mean, it's just, it's so cool. And I, what I'm really excited about is like a book nerd and I love going to bookstores. This is going to look cool, you know, at a bookstore. Yeah. And I think it'll catch many eyes as well, which I think yeah. a successful book cover does. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. It's really, I'm so excited to have this on my shelves. It's just so cool. The, um, papers, the pink, hot pink end papers with the pattern inside that I had nothing to do with that. It's so awesome. And it was like almost like an afterthought. And by the time they shared it with me, I think the book was maybe even in production already. I was just so excited because I just love, you just don't expect that from the, from the outside either, you know? Yeah, I think this is the first book cover that I'm just absolutely inside and out, totally delighted with the design. That's awesome to hear. I mean, I, I love talking about book cover and book cover design. And so thank you for entertaining that. Um, I guess my last question is for you here, and this doesn't have to be exactly tailored to like books that are necessarily in conversation with this one, but it can be. But I just, I always look for some book recommendations at the end of every discussion, anything yeah. that you're reading now, any all-time favorites kind of open floor. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm, I, I'm one of these people who I feel guilty or ashamed to admit this, but I always have, you know, three, four, five books that I'm reading at the same time, which I think is not the way you should do it, but that's just the way that I do it. And and I'm I've made my peace with it, you know. So I think on my nightstand right now, I've got Biography of X by Catherine Lacey, which really needs no introduction. She was on your show very recently. Um, a really daring, really original novel that I that I'm really loving. I've got a memoir by a woman named Pamela DeBar, uh, who was a very, very famous groupie in the 60s and 70s. And um, she just kind of dishes about all these rock stars that she had flings with. There's an incredibly hilarious description that I won't spoil um, about halfway through the book of Paul McCartney's Balls. So very, well worth the price of admission just for that. Um, I think it's like page 248. You can just skip to that. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm reading, um, I'm rereading a lot of 50s and 60s crime novels by Ross MacDonald, who was an extremely prolific crime novelist. Um, uh, right now I'm reading a, a novel of his called The Drowning Pool, um, which is pretty fun. And then I think the last book that I have on my night table is actually a book of poetry uh, by John Ashbery called Houseboat Days, which uh, may be my favorite volume of poetry of the last let's say 50 years absolutely amazingly beautiful strange shouldn't work but it, of course it works brilliantly collection of poetry houseboat days by john ashbury thank you yeah i need to read more poetry um i have ben Lerner's new one which comes out later this year um over here and i'm really excited to read that but i'll have to add that one to my list too poetry i find to be really challenging so i need to like force myself to, to try more of it. Yeah. But. Well, well, Ashbery is probably not a good place to start um, because he's challenging even for people who, I mean, you either, either you like what he does or, or, or you don't pretty much, you know, uh, which is funny because he was, he was good friends with, with O'Hara, you know, and, and I mean, I would probably recommend like lunch poems as a, as a better place to start for people who who want kind of to know what that sort of poetry scene in New York in the 60s and 70s was like, but a much more accessible kind of poetry collection. I mean, they even quoted it in Mad Men at one point, to my amazement. Frank O'Hara, Lunch Poems. If you, between that and Houseboat Days by John Ashbery, that's all you need. 
Okay, perfect. Thank you for that. And thank you for, you know, all the book recommendations. And I guess last thing here, just thank you so much for coming on the pod. Um, it really means the world. I was so excited about this ever since, you know, Catherine talked about the book. And so I'm really stoked that I got the chance to unpack what's going on in this. So I hope you did it justice, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have Catherine Lacey as, as your cheering section, I'll tell you. It's, um, she's a wonderfully enthusiastic human being with excellent taste. Yeah, she's very cool. And yeah, great taste for sure. She, she offered a lot of great book recommendations too when she's on the pod. But uh, yeah, thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a blast. 